Hello, and welcome to The Right Idea, where we discuss the people, policy, and politics that drive Texas. I'm your co-host, Brian Phillips, the Chief Communications Officer at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And as always, my co-host, our Vice President of Policy, Derek Cohen, is with us. Derek, how are we this week? Busy? A little bit, a little bit, yeah. I mean, even if you look at some of the floor action and committee action from earlier on, you know, that was still at a at, at a clip because we're in that accelerating part of the session. But, of course, obviously today, you know, we're recording this on a Thursday. Uh, we're going to have the Titanic floor discussions on mm-hmm. in both chambers, not to mention a uh, very, uh, I would say, high-profile uh, debate within the Senate Education Committee uh, during the day. And we will get to all that discussion this week, but uh, suffice it to say, how many days do we have left? 54. 54 days in regular session. Um, and don't, don't put that evil out there. I'm don't. not, I'm not, but it is, but it is, you know, it's always an interesting question to see if things are moving at the pace that they mm-hmm. need to be moving in order to get all the major items and all the things done uh, during the regular session so that there's not a special session. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if, you know, saying those words, you know, three times will <laughs> make it magically happen. So, um, uh, but we'll see. Um, so uh, w- I want to get to a few things uh, this week. Uh, we'll want to chat about, obviously, the Trump indictment was a big thing. We'll maybe get to that in top topics uh, later on in the show. Um, but as always, we love your feedback. We love your um, you know responses and, and show ideas and topics and all of that. You can reach me on Twitter at RealBPhil, RealBPhil on Twitter. Reach uh, Derek at Cohen at TBPF on Twitter as well. So you can give us your feedback. You can give us your constructive criticism or all your your hate, whatever it is that, uh, that you do on social media. All right, so we'll jump right in because, again, it is a very, very busy week. I've got a list of golly, half a dozen, maybe more items that I would love to chat about today that are going on. Um, but the number one thing, the biggest um, legislative priority, of course, is uh, education savings accounts, school choice, parent empowerment. It's the biggest issue of the session. Today, uh, this morning, uh, the Senate Education Committee is meeting on these issues. Uh, Derek, where do we sit with SB8, which is the, the bill number for the for the school choice bill, the education savings accounts bill? A lot has changed mm-hmm. uh, in terms of what that bill does uh, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, tell us right now kind of what the environment is for, for passage of that bill. Well, I mean, just taking, you know, just taking cues from other legislation, priority legislation that we've seen moving through the Senate, you know, I would still default to that this is going to pass the Senate easily. Well, I should say easily. I mean, there's going to be a a predictable margin. You know, I could probably uh, guess right now it'll probably be Mm -hmm. 18-13 if I were to uh, if I were to proffer a guess. But I think we just saw with the with the full throat support of the lieutenant governor, with the support of uh, many active members in the chamber, both members who have been established and uh, freshman members of the Senate. You know, we see a broad coalition of senators really getting behind this. And then we tend to see, I I think, people having to default to their political priors rather than giving uh, SBA a fair hearing, especially because, you know, half of that, uh, half of that bill, you know, doesn't even have anything to do with uh, education savings account. It has to do with the parental bill of rights. And I think that that has really broad bipartisan appeal but again, you got to dance with the ones that brought you. Mm-hmm. And I do, and I, that's one of the things I wanted to get to is, you know, I have read the bill, um, uh, unlike a lot of people out there who are commenting on it. Mm. Um, and one of the things that strikes me is right up front. I mean, the first, you know, 10, 15 pages of it really, I mean, like you said, are not, don't have to deal with the most controversial, perhaps the most controversial element, which is the education savings accounts, but really do pack in a lot of protections uh, uh, for parents. I mean, there's the transparency measures, you know, making sure 
sure that parents have access to the materials that are that that classrooms are using, the materials, the lessons, to make sure there's a process for parents to to uh, get that information. Um, you know, the grievance process, mm-hmm. going into and making sure that that parents get a response if they have a problem or they have an issue with something that's going on in the classroom. That that schools are responsive to parents' needs. Mm-hmm. They have a 14-day minimum uh, that uh, that parent that schools will have to get back and respond to parents. So there's there's a lot of really um, important things for parents in that bill. There's a lot of things uh, for them to like. Is it perfect? No, again, uh, but 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 think about where we are in this yeah. debate. Um, you know, two years ago, certainly four, five, six years ago, mm-hmm. the common wisdom was, you know, because of the financial interests involved in uh, in this, in uh, school choice and you know, kind of how the money moves and all that. Everybody just said in Texas, this was never going to happen. Right. And here we are. Not only is SB eight being debated today, and like you said, is likely going to pass the full Senate. But then next week, it's going to go over to the House where for the first time in a decade, according to our research, for the first time in a decade, the House Public Education Committee will actually hold a hearing on a school choice bill, a education mm-hmm. savings account bill. So that's a that's a milestone yeah. of their own. Now, and I will go ahead and highlight, and you know, all credit due to uh, Chairman Buckley for, for setting that particular mm-hmm. hearing, that the, the analog to SB8 is not going to be heard. So and I, but that's because if you look at SBH more of an omnibus package on on parental empowerment, generally speaking, right? Mm -hmm. And so the bills that are going to be heard in the House are more of the specific, like, ESA rifle shots, Mm -hmm. uh, education savings account rifle shots. And so the issue with that, obviously, is still going to be a long, contentious hearing, but that being said, it'll be confined to that particular funding mechanism as opposed to... You know, and well, I'm sure it'll come up, but like the things like the, uh, what's we'll to say, curriculum standards and content standards right. won't be the, you know, that won't be the front and center issue of mm. that particular debate. Now, that being said, does that mean that it, it can't, it won't go off into, you know, those particular places? I, I believe it probably will. Now, I will, I do hope that the uh, chairman does uh, set and enforce a, um, a timer. I've been through several hearings this week, <laughs> uh, including one late last night uh, that that neglected to do so. And uh, when you know how the the, uh, the old "if you build it, they will come" uh, mm-hmm. thing. Sure. If you, if you let people talk, they will talk. <laughs> so <laughs> and and so that's that's so you're the, there until two o'clock in the morning, just droning on about exactly. And and the thing is, you know, obviously you want everybody to have you know a say within the democratic process, and there's you know multiple forums for that. The problem is, though, of course, if you monopolize, and we saw this with the the gender modification debate uh, in the in the House, is that there was not an enforced uh, uh, shot clock there, as I call it, and you know some of these witness. There was one witness who went on for an hour, and you know it's just, and they're supposed to have what five minutes. Well, it, it, it's completely up to the discretion of the chair. Most most chairs, uh, if it's something that's really long and contentious, going to be a hearing, they'll set up for two. Mm-hmm. The standard tends to be three. Yeah. And usually, you know, if somebody's in the middle of a thought and that little red light goes off uh, that says that their time's up, you know, nine times out of ten, somebody on the committee will ask them to finish their thought. And, and obviously, if you've been asked to finish a thought or asked to finish a statement or something, you know, that is that member giving that time to you. So that is an untimed um Right. An untimed part. But yeah, all that all that to say is, you know, these people and I, and I would tell this to even people that are, you know, have hostile intent to legislation we support or even, you know, people that are, are with us on whatever the issue might be. It's if you can't get your points out in three minutes, 
it's probably not as as hewn as it needs to be. It's probably right. not as as tightly um, constructive an argument as it needs to be. Because a good one is a good one creates your lays out your whole argument in three minutes, and then it gives ample inroads for members to ask questions, and you can have that long term debate. Right, and it's you know it's a, it's a good process. I mean, I have my own concerns, but I mean, I worked in Congress. We don't have you know when I was in Congress, we don't have anything like that where the mm. you know the public can come in and just talk for hours you know at a time. Um, on a, on a particular issue. Um, so maybe they do it the right way in Texas, maybe not. Maybe there's some tweaks that they could do. Oh, it's better uh, than the alternative, I'd say. Absolutely. Right, exactly. Just um, like some late nights. <laughs> and then, so so segueing into the House, of course, there is a, 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 there is a controversy in there. They're, they're doing the budget today, mm-hmm. and one of the, the typical amendments that uh, always gets offered is to block any funding mm-hmm. for school choice, to block any funding for parents to use mm-hmm. uh, public money to go to anything other than the public school talk a little bit about that debate probably be over by the time that we end up airing this yeah uh this program i'll talk a little bit about the ins and outs of that well i I don't want to say too much about that particular amendment because i think that there has been some um maybe maybe a little bit of of laziness in its consideration and construction and Mm -hmm. i think we'll have more uh clarity on that uh you know when we record next week but yeah, essentially, like you said, it, what it does is ostensibly bans uh, any form of savings account grants, whatever the, the case might be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was signed on to by, I believe, one Republican originally and three uh, Democrats and then three more uh, Republicans came and, and signed on to it as well. And, and, I, and I find that somewhat puzzling because it seems like that would be you know, a vote that obviously when it came time to vote, if it comes time to vote, um, would be something that then you could you could signal your you could signal your colors. But in the meantime, signing on to something that is, you know, against the party that you, you know, against the, the priority platform of the party you profess to be a member to. And obviously against the governor's number one priority in which he has definitely put a lot of his own personal energy behind. The politics, at least, are head scratching. Yeah. So I, so I don't understand. Now, now, the, now, the policy, I mean, well, the policy is even worse. I mean, sure. granted, but that's coming from from my particular point of view. Why you why would you want to make sure that we lock, uh, you know, make sure we take chains to the doors of these, these failing schools and not let the kids out is, you know, baffling to me. But, we, you know, we've discussed that ad nauseum. But, yeah, the politics of it are what really give me uh, the concern. But, you know, that being said is, you know, if and when it comes to the vote, I know that there's a lot of charged emotions there. Having looked over the rest of the amendment packet, I know that forcing votes on that is going to force votes on a lot of other things, in Article 3 specifically. Mm-hmm. And there is are they're going to... If we thought there were things that were uncomfortable about that particular vote, I think there are things that are, you know, basically cataclysmic. So, so hijinks and shenanigans could ensue. It may, or or they can use the uh, the House rule that was in Section Five of the rules specific to the consideration of HB One, and just roll it all into Article Eleven, and then everybody could be home in their back in their district by five p.m. And we will translate everything he just said next week on the show <laughs> because we will know exactly what happened. So I want to get to some Hope other springs eternal at least. I want to get to some other issues um, that are, I mean, just really some big issues. Um, power grid bills mm-hmm. are going through the Senate right now. Um, SB Seven is a is a really important bill. One that, and I'm trying to do the bumper sticker version of it. Mm-hmm. 
right now. Um, but it's but it, from from our perspective, it's a good bill because it um, it forces the the folks, you know, the energy generators who are um, shall we say intermittent or or not as reliable. Um, of course, that's more of the wind and solar uh, type of generation. But it basically says, look, if you um, you know if you if you can't guarantee a certain amount of of a generation uh, of power onto the grid when we need it the most, um, then you're going to have to pay for that. Then you're gonna, then that's a that's a cost that that incurs uh, amongst all the generators and the folks who are the ones who are less reliable are going to have to ultimately pay right. for that. Um, that bill passed out of the Senate 31 to nothing. Now you would think there there would be some you know a little bit more debate that there would be a little bit more you know especially because a lot of people see it as you know targeting wind and solar or favoring mm-hmm. fossil fuels or at least that's the way some of the left have framed it, uh, but it passed thirty-one to nothing. Was that a surprise for that particular one? No, you'd be surprised how you'd be surprised how popular it is that when you take that little thing on the wall and flip it up into another position that the lights come on. Yeah, that <laughs> tends to be a, a fairly bipartisan issue. Um, now, you know, I say that flippantly, but obviously there's disagreements on how do we get to a more reliable standard for uh, the lights coming on uh, when that happens. Now, this one. I think is good because I mean again this, this puts a this actually introduces a pricing mechanism into you know, it, it translates reliability into uh, into the money side mm-hmm. because you know imagine if you just had a I mean okay well I mean I can think of many jobs several at the Capitol where you just show up when you want to and you get paid for the days you work mm-hmm. that's essentially what it is when uh, you know when wind and solar are you know turned on and blowing and, uh, and of course with the subsidies it allows them to actually bid in sometimes at a negative spot price wherein they can actually pay people to take money you know take right. wattage off their hands right and so I think that this is a actually while it seems like it's a thumb on the scale this is actually more of a free market uh, solution because it introduces introduces a pricing mechanism mm-hmm. into the uh, into the uh, you know, to, to take a phrase from Jason Isaac, to the unreliables. Right. And so and, and, and the importance of this bill in particular is, you know, there were some things done last session, some other things done this session that that shore up the reliability of the grid, that mm-hmm. prevent some of the problems that are obviously that uh, incurred during the, the ice storm uh, yes. two years ago. Um, so we fixed a lot of that. But this really goes to the fixing the system, like you say, like the mm-hmm. pricing system to make mm-hmm. sure um, that just in general, the grid is more reliable overall, mm-hmm. not just in times of emergency but just making sure that the grid is more reliable overall. So we'll see. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, we a lot of folks thought that this would be more controversial, that there would be more pushback and more debate. Um, 31 nothing in the Senate, probably going to sail uh, over to the House, and, and we'll see what happens there. Uh, another big set of bills going on, again, education-related, uh, re- this time uh, regarding higher ed. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There are some bills going through the, the Senate uh, today that are being debated, DEI, the elimination of DEI programs right. uh, at, uh, at Texas public universities. You know, we've talked about this issue um, a lot uh, here on this show, just to kind of, re- you know, recap it. You know, whatever whatever the, the noble purpose of DEI programs yeah. may have been with, with uh, recruiting minorities to school, to different schools or different colleges, um, to getting you know more diversity in particular programs, whatever noble purpose DEI once served, it's pretty clear that now it's it only really serves um, as the mechanism to enforce this Marxist leftist um, uh, 
um, uh, philosophy, uh, whether it's CRT or whether it's um, you know um, really just more of a, a socialist philosophy. To you know the things that we talked about, like the, the diversity statements, which yeah. are essentially loyalty oaths and all of that. Yeah. It's morphed into this this uh, enforcement mechanism for kids to absorb and, and be indoctrinated right. with this leftist ideology. Um, so that's what it is now and today. And of course, mm. uh, Texas isn't going to stand around and just let its public universities be overrun by Marxists. And so that's what the attempt is now, is saying, look, these DEI programs no longer serve the noble purpose. Mm. It's time to eliminate them. That debate's going on today. What's happening? Well, and it's, it's funny you mentioned that because, you know, I'm a big a proponent and uh, all, all my folks, I tell them, uh, you know, subscribe them to uh, Hanlon's Razor, which is essentially never attribute to uh, malice what can be attributed to incompetence. Um, or in this case, at least just um, uh, I would I would say just kind of, you know, nonchalance because, you know, I come from that environment. And the way I seen it and having, you know, worked within uh, essentially DEI hierarchies, one of the things that I've seen is not that, you know, if you know at the meet you know the faculty senate meeting they all gather up and say okay this is how we you know the, this is how we insidiously begin our long march through the institution what it basically is is jobs for the boys you know what i mean mm -hmm. it's like again we were talking about these you know these sinecures these you know as we talked when we talked about tenure you know that where people basically come they have nothing that they're accountable for they have these things that sound good on uh, paper and, you know, it doesn't lead to any, you know, radical difference in, you know, the actual student body or even the body of the faculty because they're not actually worried about diversity. They're worried about some of the stuff that, you know, are the the signals of diversity, you know, like maybe, oh, well, we have, you know, a 5% higher enrollment of uh, students of color or, or, or something like that. But the thing is, those fluctuations happen naturally, you know, both because of reasons that of, of that the university is doing and ones that they have are, are completely beyond their control. Mm -hmm. And those, like I said, those fluctuations happen naturally, but you have a basically now an entire body of administrators within the universities that when that arrow is fired and lands, they draw a bullseye around it mm -hmm. and say, look at look at it, what we did. And, you know, this is not the only area where people have to make up stuff to justify their existence in academia. Trust me on this one. Mm -hmm. um, but that being said, it's just this hefty, onerous bureaucracy that does not contribute to the functional uh, the, the functional use, you know, the higher education mission of the particular university. Look, if they want diversity, that, I think that's great, but it needs to be diversity of thought, diversity of experience, and a lot of that will lead to, you know, diversity of the immutable characteristics that they are so obsessed mm -hmm. with. But, you know, again, let's have a diversity of opinion. Let's have a diversity uh, of background. Let's have a diversity of, you know, functional approaches to these problems that are confronting society, which is what the whole idea of higher education university was all about. Exactly. And so one of the difficult um, uh, parts of this debate is how do you measure that part? Because, you know, those on the left, excuse me, those on the left will, uh, you know, they will measure the things that you're talking about. You know, what percentage of people, you know, students of color do we have on campus or what percentage of, you know, of, of LGBT students do we have in this particular, um, uh, in this particular college or this particular uh, study and they'll just look at that and, and those studies but there's no just you know it's hard to to mm. measure diversity of viewpoint to yeah. make sure that like in these classes and when they're 
debating these issues and they're you know supposedly seeking truth mm-hmm. and um, and discovery um, how do how do you measure how do you ensure that um, that there's a diversity of viewpoint there mm-hmm. um, and that's really a cultural thing mm-hmm. right and so um, and I think that's one of the things that the that the bill is really getting at is that the cultural yeah. aspect of it has veered so far yeah. to the left so that now it's not even just that um, that that it just happens that that most professors and most students are being pushed into this uh, leftist thought, but it's actually being enforced. Mm. And that there's actually, you know, when you come to these you know, diversity statements and that kind of thing, if you're going to be on campus, if you're going to take these classes, you're going to have to have this particular yep. viewpoint. And I think that's where the legislation says, look, we're we're not gonna we're not gonna do that anymore. We're gonna make sure that um, that that there is that there is uh, more diversity of viewpoint. Absolutely, and let me ask that this is not going to lead to, you know, this bill passes, it goes into effect in September. You know, it's not going to be, you know, now Texas is just a bunch of Bob Jones universities. That's not that's not what we're gonna have. Right. What we're gonna have though is essentially this meaningless, uh, this meaningless checkbox or item to include in a tenure packet or app job application is no longer going to be. But now, again, does that mean all the universities are going to go right wing and we're going to, you know, they're going to have, you know, marches for life on campus? And none of that's going to happen. Right. I think we I, I, I'm pretty sure Texas State and uh, UT Austin are not going to just become overrun by the college Republicans after this bill goes into effect. <laughs> but that being said, though, you know, and again, I, you mentioned the cultural issue. That's something that is lost on this debate is it's not, you know, people talk about there's, you know, only 5% or I think the latest assessment with 2% of university faculty identify as Republican, right? Obviously not a whole lot of... Um, Diversity lot of, of viewpoint. Yeah, exactly. Not a whole <laughs> lot of that there. That being said, that's because most of academic... And this is where folks on the right need to, you know, actually earn, the, you know, earn their stripes is folks on the right uh, who are center right in academia, of which I know several, but then again, I, I came from, like I said, more of a, a blue collar you know, university in uh, our PhD program was fairly politically agnostic, um, which in the grand scheme of PhD programs, thus, thus makes it about as far to the right as it gets because of how far that uh, center of gravity is. But all those, a lot of those people, the people that would identify as, you know, centric, you know, moderates, even libertarians, conservatives, the, so many of them are opting out of academia. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I did 10 years ago. So it's one of these issues that, you know, just like the cities we discussed, if you're abandoning the fight, it's something that, you know, you can't really send back. Go, What's happening to this institution? Mm-hmm. Now, that being said, I do think there are instances of conservatives in academia being run roughshod over. And I think we can, you know, we can spend a whole we can spend a whole episode on UT alone in that regard. <laughs> but that being said, is I do think that as long as, you know, you get this requirement out of the way and then places, especially departments that have to deal with a very broad ideological base, you know, criminology, maybe not so much, but things like in the hard sciences and things like that. I think you will start seeing a normalization. Will it be mm-hmm. balanced? Will it be equal? Will it be representative of the larger population? I'm very skeptical, but will it be better? Yes. So jumping a little bit to um, less controversial issues, I just wanted to highlight something. And you know, we've talked about the Senate a lot, and the Senate is just you know moving bills, uh, you know as as fast as they can, particularly priority bills. They're earning their seventy two hundred dollars. They they are. They're moving. You know they're they're on the clock. You know fifty something days. Let's roll. Uh, but the House is doing uh, doing a pretty good job too. One of the issues that we talked about, we try to highlight um, because it is such an important issue, though it doesn't get a lot of uh, press attention for sure, is health care. And one bill in particular, there's a, there's a lot of interesting. Uh, 
uh, sort of facets to this. One, I'll talk about the bill. This is a bill uh, to require itemized medical billing. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you know, d- dig into that a little bit. Basically, what it does is, um, and I'll just read from the story from the Texan. Our friends of the Texan reported on this. The bill must include the full payment price, uh, which you're going to pay, a plain language description of what it is the service that you're receiving, and details associated with partial or full reimbursement from the involved insurance company. So basically a bill that we all would get uh, for any other service that we would uh, um, uh, be provided, you know, fixing your car or some some sort of, you know, home service or something. Would, they'd actually tell you what it costs, what they're going to do, and then tell you in plain language mm-hmm. uh, the service that they're going to provide. That doesn't exist, or at least apparently doesn't exist uh, to that extent in, in the healthcare industry, which is incredibly frustrating for a lot of people. Um, you know, people really feel like they're being taken advantage of uh, by, by healthcare providers, Perhaps even you know the, the insurance companies, of course, um, and so you've got so you've got this bill, uh, which would require you know which really would protect uh, patients, protect consumers, um, so that they know what they're getting into mm-hmm. uh, before these services. Obviously, non-emergency services. It's not like you know you get in a car wreck and all of a sudden somebody's going to come by with okay, this is where we're going <laughs> to we're going to amputate your leg. Um, uh, but the the other interesting part of it is that it's being it's it's be, it was filed and is being uh, pushed by a freshman, mm-hmm. uh, Caroline Harris uh, from Williamson County, just outside of Austin. Not only is it being pushed by a freshman, which you don't see, you know, a bill of this kind of substance mm-hmm. uh, generally. I mean, maybe that's true, man. It's not. You're, you'd love to get your you know institutional opinion on on the fact that a freshman's pushing this bill, but also it has 107 co- uh, co-authors, which means obviously it's got a majority of the House already in support. Obviously, it's bipartisan. Um, a lot of different interesting positive uh, facets for this bill. What's your take on it? Well, so you asked me about my institutional perspective on freshmen carrying bills of this magnitude. You know, when I started in my first couple sessions, I would have been like, wow, this is that is something notable. But more and more, we're seeing uh, these freshmen, you know, that's not to, you know, to denigrate their abilities or anything, but this is just an observation of, there's going to be a growing pains and a job, you know, there's no other job that prepares you for uh, what it's like to be in the legislature. I think, I think at least, you know, some of these people come from like city council, which is a completely different setup. Mm-hmm. But and also, not to catch you off, but no, no. also, you know, bills of substance, you know, you have members yeah. who are, you know, three or four or five terms, you know, they've been waiting their turn to, you know, to introduce mm. the kind of bills of substance. And maybe that's why you don't see it as much as because, yeah. you know, now you've got a third term member who wants to really push a bill and, and do something uh, and do something for his, his constituents right. or so. That's why this maybe is a little different. Yeah, a- absolutely. Now, I will say about this bill, and I, and I mean this with no absolutely no uh, no slight to Representative Harris, who's absolutely, I think we can say a Objectively, has been just absolutely killing it this year. Uh, that it seems, I mean, now granted, it's more complex than it seems because of about pricing and, you know, kind of overcoming the the, the impulse to put uh, Medicaid, you know, or, no, I'm sorry, uh, uh, medical coding items there. So you basically, yeah. what does what the Medicaid billing formula or Medicare billing formula look like? And putting that there so that you said plain English is something that, that, that it actually does. It seems simple, but that's the, the simplicity or the parsimony of the bill itself is not what makes it difficult. It's obviously specifically with this one, with this bill, uh, Ms. Harris has to actually push against a pretty pronounced body of special interest. You know, that kind of like the status quo and like the way things are going. Not be, and again, I'm, you know, is one of the ones where I try not to 
default to malice, but I think it's just a lot easier doing things the way they are and maybe keeping people in the dark uh, in a way that happens in the status quo is something that does redound to a bottom line benefit. But at the very least, we know that changing, you know, take, it's t- changing is tough and, and nobody wants to change. So credit, credit to Ms. Harris for bringing that. Again, mm-hmm. saying the bill is simple, I think kind of undergirds or kind of undergirds, but undermines the, the, what she's had to do to move it. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, going forward, this is the kind of item that you can build a resume off. You know, last night, last night I was in PIFs, the uh, Pensions, Investments, and Financial Services. Um, and Representative Troxclair, former city councilwoman here in Austin, basically had a bill that you would have to go, everyone called it the Project Connect bill, Project Connect bill. Because what happened with Project Connect is basically voters were sold a bill of goods. They voted on it overwhelmingly. And that bill of goods never came delivered. And then they think that for, you know, to, pr- to provide something else, they don't need to come back to the voters. And, of uh, course, it's going to cost twice as much. And, yeah. And, yeah. And, and I am sympathetic to the inflation, though. The people that were lament- lamenting the inflation, their policy preferences don't uh, – their their aversion to inflation is uh, selectively applied, I think we can always sure. say. But that being said is she was pushing against – uh, she was pushing against that. And again, it just seems so simple saying, look, any sort of debt obligation taken out in the name of the voters should be voted on. Mm-hmm. And if you take out debt in the name of the voters and don't and don't actually deliver, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. They need a vote to see if we're going to continue down this path because, yeah. you know, essentially one bond election does not a blank check make. Mm-hmm. And, you know, anybody that has any experience in municipal finance understands this. The problem, of course, being like, oh, well, that'll make, we'll have to have elections for all this. You have to have elections for every major bond issue as it is. Yep. And that's the way it's going to, that's the way it's always going to be. And I'll be damned if we're going to step away from that because, you know, these city councils through many of these other mechanisms, whether certificates of obligation or the tax revenue anticipation notes, all these other fraudulent, uh, and I, I mean, pause, uh, tax anticipate or tax revenue anticipation notes. That's a fraudulent means of uh, uh, a fraudulent means of yeah, getting we talked debt. about this last time. In the exactly, issue of the C- COs have their place, uh, uh, certificates of obligation, but they do need massive oversight. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that we're dealing with that here, you know, we're never going to step away from voter approved debt, right? Because um, otherwise, then the cities will just absolutely. But run in, rough in shot. general, we'll just say kudos to to Miss Harris, to Representative Harris. Um, you know, being a freshman, absolutely. taking on that that big issue, as you said, it you know on its face, it feels really simple. It feels like something that you know should have happened a long time ago, uh, but it hasn't because it is so sophisticated and so complicated. Yeah. Um, uh, and so the special interests are raised against it. That so two things I want to hit. Yeah, again, there was so much. There was a ton that was happening. Mm-hmm. Just really quickly, you know. Um, it's kind of a, I mean, I don't know if it's a joke or it's, you know, con, you know, uh, creating all kinds of controversy, but you know, they call it the drag show bill, which is mm. essentially um, uh, codifying drag shows as sexually oriented events or uh, businesses and then uh, preventing minors from from being, um, it was kind of, kind of a, uh, a circus during the hearing a little bit. Um, so uh, to speak. Yeah. Well, the one thing I wanted to bring up with is, is of course, and it passed, I think it, it passed the Senate. And mm-hmm. so now um, the Senate has approved um, that these businesses that produce these sexually oriented um, uh, content um, no longer can have minors there, mm-hmm. which I, uh, what, uh, which I, you know, obviously think is a good thing. But my, my point is that this all happened over the last couple of years because of the grassroots. Mm-hmm. I mean, this really was not necessarily an issue that had bubbled up 
up to the surface. It wasn't an issue that a lot of, uh, you know, that members were filing these bills year after year and waiting for, you know, the time. It really came from the grassroots. It came from these shocking videos uh, that were taken and then were publicized through social media where you see, you know, men dressed as women, scantily clad, you know, basically performing, you know, strip teases in front of children who are giving them dollar bills and, and it just horrified Texans. That's just not who we are. It's just not the values that we hold. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that issue was really pushed. And so it is kind of a milestone, a uh, successful milestone of the grassroots, conservative grassroots, um, that that bill, you know, not only was filed, but was made a priority uh, early in the session and then passed through the Senate. Yeah. And I, and I think, again, you know, how, how many times have we've gotten on this show and talked about how, you know, reality versus how things are um, uh, talked about in the media. And so it is funny. So I actually, you know, I came about this bill. I get back to my desk and I, I see it up there because obviously it wasn't one I was uh, following ex- explicitly. And I was hearing like, oh, this is, you know, this is basically going to, you know, be the pretext for rounding up all the uh, trans folks and, and sending them to the camps and stuff like that. Like this was, this is what was said during the hearing Nonsense. by some of the witnesses. And so I was like, oh, my goodness, I got to read this bill. What is going on with it? That, that's not good at all. All this does is it says that if the show, if the show itself is explicitly sexual in nature, then it can't be in front of kids. So if everyone's like, oh, well, this will prevent Drag Queen Story Hour. This explicitly will not. <laughs> this right. explicitly will not because it requires that purian interest. And so it's just funny that it gets discussed as such. And like, you know, this doesn't criminalize drag. It only criminalizes drag that is explicitly sexual and targeted at minors. And so I I just don't understand why we can't have this discussion about this, because, I mean, I do think there is a values discussion. I do think that, you know, people can differ on this. Well, I mean, obviously I have my priors on this, but people can differ on this. But when the one state when people go so hyperbolic to one side of this, you know, it goes, look, if you're going to force a binary, no pun intended, given the subject, but if you're going to force a binary, you know, that it's like we're going to have these or we're not going to have these. And that's the other side. And like that's, you know, the, the horrific examples is the ones that they're saying there shouldn't be any problem at all. Right. I'm sorry. I'm just on the band side. And, and so much of this particular issue, whether it's the the gender modification or you know bathrooms or mm-hmm. or um, men playing women's sports, you know the left has gone so far they can't. They just absolutely refuse to have an intellectually honest debate mm-hmm. about the issues. And so um, you know this one obviously it was it was targeted towards kids. I mean we still have. I mean drag shows are still legal. Mm-hmm. Like there's no, no one stopping. And you know, there was ridiculous testimony during this time. Oh, this is going to prevent you know people from from. Uh, you know, having certain Halloween costumes or a man dressing like a cheerleader or something and going down to 6th Street, uh, and which is all just nonsense. And they right. just go so far to the left that, you know, if you want to have the debate. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we started this show. We call it the right idea because we want to talk about the ideas. We want to talk about the policies and what gets to the heart of the debate. And so many of these things, particularly on this kind of issue and things related to this issue, get so far to the left and get so crazy um, that they're not really having an intellectual actually honest debate about I, it. I, ha- I have to say, and again, back to Hanlon's razor, you know, we, you know, don't, let's not blame malice for what incompetence will do. Some, I, I'm just assuming these people never read the bill because, because you can't read the, there's no they just reading read the of, newsletters and the, and the, you know, legislative alerts from the far left groups. Yeah. And then, and, and that's the thing though. It's then, then you want to actually have a discussion with people and they will say, you know, they'll get up in your face and say, this literally criminalizes drag. And it goes, in a very applied context, like, you know, when there's nudity, when there's uh, explicit, uh, you know, content within the, the show and and there's children present. Yeah. And so that's a big conjunct there. 
So one, there's two other things I want to get to. I know we're kind of running out of time here, but um, um, we, we have to talk about SB 23. SB 23 was a priority bill of the lieutenant governor, um, and that passed through the Senate. Um, this bill, I'll just read um, uh, from our friends again at the Texan, um, approved a bill that would require people who use a firearm while certain uh, while committing certain felonies. So they're already in the store trying to rob it or they're, you know, mm-hmm. burglary or something else. Um, committing a certain felony but using a firearm would serve a minimum of 10 years in prison uh, if convicted. Uh, judges wouldn't be able to offer people charged with gun-related crimes the opportunity to have convictions wiped from the records uh, even if they successfully complete the probation. Um, so this is putting some real sting, putting mm-hmm. some more sting. This is Republicans, um, you know, getting tough on crime because, you know, Texas obviously we've got some issues over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and this is a big priority bill. Uh, Senator Huffman uh, ran the bill for uh, for the Senate and I believe that it passed. I think it, it, it did pass. What's your take on this bill? Uh, I'm I'm torn. So Texas, you know, we're if you look at how our criminal justice system in Texas works, you know, we've largely uh, rejected the use of of mandatory minimums. You know, mm-hmm. we have been always, you know, been a a broad sentencing bracket uh, uh, state. And then if we wanted to increase the potential punishment, we would usually get in a code and say, you know, whereas jaywalking right now is a, you know, a second degree felony. Obviously, it's not. But jaywalking, a second-degree felony, and we got this plague of jaywalking, then we're going to up it to a uh, a first-degree felony, and then there's going to be broader sentence ranges for that, right? Mm-hmm. And then, obviously, with the jury sentencing, it'd be something that we do there. So you're it's, saying that that this that in Texas, generally, it gives judges as a yeah. range of options versus yes. saying, look, if they are convicted of this crime, you have no options. Judges, you must give them this kind of sentence. Yeah, or at the very least, establishes the floor. It does, I mean, they could still... They can still uh, you know, you have uh, 20 years or 30 yeah. years or whatever. Exactly. So long as it's within the bracket of whatever the, the underlying offense is. Right. And so the, the reason I'm torn is not because I don't think that people that get charged with this go away for the long a long time. The problem is creating when you have ever any sort of determined element of a sentence. The problem is really making sure that you're capturing the folks and the behavior that you want to capture. Mm-hmm. Now. I, I know I applaud Senator Huffman, Chairwoman Huffman, because she's, you know, she as a former judge, she knows what she's talking. You know, this is not like yeah, right. her, ha- you know, <laughs> happening across this area and then blindly stumbling through this. She knows what she's talking about. And being from Harris County, she sees For sure. firsthand yeah. mm-hmm. has uh, right, uh, constituents who are being victimized firsthand. Um, what happens when we see basically just a lax application of, of this? Now, that's that's on the upside. So, yeah, people that use instrumentally use weapons uh, to commit crime. Ten years. I, no skin off my back for that. Here's here's the issue that we run into with mandatory minimums more broadly elsewhere, too. The reason that we have crime going up, especially in certain jurisdictions, is just because the absolute abdication of the rule of law in these areas. Now, I don't necessarily believe that Kim Og, who's the DA of Harris County, is going, ah, he had somebody just, you know, fire into a crowd of people. Eh, I'm sure there's root causes at work. Well, you know, let's plea them down. You know, that, that's not that's not her style. But you do have other district attorneys, such as in Dallas, such as in Austin, such as in, uh, well, you don't have a district attorney in El Paso anymore, but she had vacated because of just the absolute horrible job she was doing. But people would, again, are on this, you know, again, we're not allowed to say, Sor- you know, Soros backed, even though literally he goes, I backed these prosecutors and it's because of their particular stances on crime. 
But you have these people that are deliberately disengaging from law enforcement. Now, here's the problem with this is that once you have the statutory construction there, it can be applied. It's going to be applied all over the state, including places where this stuff's not happening, you know, not happening frequently. But then when that person want, or when that prosecutor wants to punish that individual, they are now, you know, bound to the mast of that particular sentencing scheme. Now, in, if it, will it still happen in the uh, the woke jurisdictions, the Harris counties and I'm sorry, the uh, Travis counties? That's that's the issue. We've passed in the Midwest, you know, in the 70s and 80s. This was a big, a big push. It was the mandatory minimum specifically for gun crimes. This mm -hmm. is something I studied uh, in graduate school. Essentially, what you've seen specifically in the state of Michigan, because that was one of the big bellwether states to put this type of policy in there, basically say mandatory minimum for the existence of a gun. And again, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily you know broker any caution there. The problem is specifically in Wayne County where Detroit is, prosecutors just when somebody robbed somebody, they just would never enter a gun into the charging document. So we're so now we have this space because so they want the flexibility, the ability to extract the plea to be able to do that, which just foregoes. And so they would just stop adding the elements that trigger the enhancement. So now we have to believe now. So in Wayne County where people go around, give me all your money, giving finger guns at people, you know, <laughs> or, or like, how are you going to stick somebody up with a weapon? And that weapon's not actually going to be entered as an element of the case. And so that's the, I mean, that's the so quintessential of, problem. So what you're saying is instead of um, forcing the prosecutors to, to seek, you know, the, at least the minimum penalty here yeah. that would require uh, people to go to way to jail, they just... They just ignore facts of the case in order to mm -hmm. give themselves the flexibility that yeah. they no longer had. Absolutely. And the, as you know, there's parallel legislation going through about reigning in rogue DAs. Mm -hmm. Even with what looks to be going through with that, I'm not sure that that is going to provide that surety that that factual element that somebody used a gun. And again, the, the issue, the, the language could be tighter in the bill in terms of because it says use or exhibit. Mm -hmm. And that's fairly fairly broad because you know what if it's in a way you know we can get right, it but, that, sure. but that's my new show let's just talk about the broader the broader point that might gun just might not appear in the charging document in the case so that a plea can be extracted and like i said even if the uh, rogue da's legislation goes through and passes i'm not sure that will be enough to compel them to do that mm -hmm. and so I mean, I guess to the point that it could create some unintended consequences. Maybe they can tighten it up with language in the House. Mm. Um, but the, you know, look, the whole point is is we've talked about this several mm. times. Is that you know, when we're when it comes to criminal justice, we're mm. we're trying to put we're trying to identify who the mm. real bad guys are, yes. and 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 put them away so that they are no longer yeah. a danger to the public. I think that is the obviously the spirit of this of this law. Um, and but but you know, to your point, if it has been um, if it has been uh, implemented in other states and created these unintended consequences, right. maybe we need to learn from that and get some research down there um, into our friends in the house uh, so that we can tighten up that language. A absolutely. And, and this is not, and this is not, like I said, well, do not, uh, do not take this as a screed again against this bill. So yeah, it's, still a great it, bill. it's a very, it's a very tough thing to do because you're basically trying to thread three or four needles in a row. Yeah. You, you need to account for the facts of an offense, you need to account for the facts of the offender being criminal history. What You need to account for the district attorney of that area, and you got to account for the judge. And that's just one iteration. Yep. And so that four-dimensional problem exists in 240, uh, 254 different mm -hmm. individual iterations here in the state. 
how do you do that? That's you know that's that's more faith that's more faith in a uh, uh, local elected officials than I think I and have. and that's the kind of the point is that it really hits at this issue that that the public sees what's going on and they're angry about yeah, it and rightfully they, and, so and they don't and and they don't trust that these prosecutors are doing things in the public interest you yes. know we see people who should be behind bars getting out on bail and that can create you know when they're getting into all that issue as well but i think this is a response to that that at Absolutely. least the people um you know are demanding that if that their local folks are not going to do yep. the right thing that the state get involved and in our response and our response it. is justified yeah. it's is this the right one we're gonna have to see all right, so we've gone really, really long, but I want to get the, the national news. We can't <laughs> get out of here without talking about the the Trump indictment, mm-hmm. the politics, the policy, the the craziness of all of that. Um, I, you know, I, we we've all we've all probably digested that. Um, you know, particularly in conservative media, we've all pretty much digested that these are you know you know for lack of a better term, trumped up charges. I saw it coming, and I could do nothing yeah, about it. Yeah, I know it's not really anything that you can say, but it, but, it, but it is ridiculous the 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 process by which that they um, that they indicted uh, the president, particularly how they elevated it to a felony. Everybody knows those details, so I don't necessarily want to belabor all of the nonsense there. But do you have a different or a different angle or a different take on this that you want to talk about? A, a, a different take? No. The one thing I would the one thing I would highlight is that you can you know regard your opinion of Trump. You know what you think of him as a as a man, as a president, as a presidential candidate should have nothing to do with your interpretation of this particular uh, this particular case. The I, I, I this is probably and again coming from somebody who's been in this world for you know going on 20 years now, this is one of the most flimsiest um, indictments I've ever seen. And the fact that it was 34 counts, you know, just a, a, a what we call a stuffed indictment. Um, meaning that basically every paper that was printed in, in part of a fraudulent transaction would be then its own yeah. uh, item. It, it just it's absolutely not. And the, the legal theory that they can enforce federal election law uh, at the felony level within the state courts is actually, you know, antithetical to other findings that we've actually had in recent Supreme Court cases, not least of which being uh, the Prince case, the anti-commandeering case, being that it's basically saying that you can't, the federal government can't tell local officials what to do. And the rationale that arose from that was essentially, look, if if they, they are doing the business of the federal executive, the president needs to have the ability to fire or... Um, you know, fire, discipline, or crap, the or in control the federal workforce. Mm-hmm. That what, what what's he gonna is is Joe Biden going to reach down and uh, you know fire what all the ADAs under? I mean, obviously Bragg's elected, but all his ADAs mm-hmm. is he going to be able to do anything? Absolutely not. What about what about Arizona v. U.S.? You you might remember it being the uh, the show me your papers yeah, stuff that was right. going on there. That essentially the said that and that actually put up another uh, another firewall saying that look you know even if the federal government is abdicating their responsibility the state can't therefore preempt something that is essentially a federal priority in that case being immigration mm-hmm. here being uh, uh, election enforcement uh, you know to the tune of paying you know one hundred thirty thousand uh, dollars you know to the hush to, money whatever yeah, exactly but all that being said is that. You know, there are two cases, one that one that says state can't do this. The other said that feds can't do this. Mm-hmm. 
um, and very establishing. It's like two bright lines that are not touching, right. and and so yeah, it's which like, is why previous yeah. prosecutors had had um, declined to take the case for over the last five years. Absolutely, and, you know, you obviously have Alvin Bragg who ran on you know his his platform was going after Trump, and mm-hmm. and now he's got to you know make good on his campaign promises, yeah. I guess. Um, but the but the whole thing, the politics of it is is pretty interesting mm-hmm. uh, for me. I mean, you know, when you when you evaluate, obviously this is going to put Trump in the news. Yeah. Um, which is exactly where he wants to be, and he loves mm-hmm. controversy. He creates uh, controversy so that he can uh, get in the news. Um, he thinks it's all you know inures to the benefit of his of his presidential campaign. Um, he's given now two or three rallies since he was indicted uh, to demonstrate that he is out and free and that he is uh, that he is fighting all of this. Um, and so you know it's it's hard to tell right now um, how obviously all of this is going to play out in terms mm-hmm. of the presidential campaign. Um, uh, um, and and there's a lifetime between now and and Iowa of next year. We're going to have five debates this year alone. We'll have uh, obviously two with Iowa and, and South Carolina uh, next year. Um, and so there's a lot, you know, a lot to go on. This doesn't, you know, anybody coming out and prognosticating that oh, well, this yep. guarantees that the pre- that that you know Trump is now going to be the nominee and that he's going to win the presidency. Look, there will be a lot of people who uh, were not Trump fans who will say, look, yep. this is wrong what they're doing to him. I don't know that that translates into a primary vote yeah. uh, for him necessarily, particularly if you've got um, other alternatives like a Ron DeSantis or or others um, out there. I think um, people are just tired. I think people are just tired of all, like the kind the everything dialed up to eleven all the time. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like ho- holding your the side of your face against like a belt sander. It just never <laughs> lets up. Um, and that's, uh, but getting back to session with that. <laughs> exactly. Um, all right. So we've gone way over time, but that's because we have a ton to talk about. I literally have three or four other issues that we didn't get to. Maybe we'll try and get to those, uh, uh, next week. Um, but, uh, but this has been great. It's been a ton of information. That's exactly why we try to do this program is to give you, uh, the bottom line and kind of cut through some of the, the, uh, the um, uh, cut through some of the, the smoke and mirrors and all that that's going on with the, how people frame these debates and get right down to the to the nitty-gritty of, of what's going to happen. So a lot going on today. We're excited to see kind of where we'll be with a lot of these issues next week. Um, so as always, we'll sign off for now. Um, as we always like to say in the words of Sam Houston, uh, do good and risk the consequences. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. And we will see you next week.